Good evening, Wisdom Eccentrics by Nat Chang Rinpoche, Chapter 32, Part 2. The next day we went to see Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche and Jomo Sampal Daichen again. We enjoyed a marvellous day together and Lama Gyaltsen performed a remarkable role in translating as much as he could of what I was unable to follow. After a deal of conversation, Rinpoche said, There's a story I would like to tell you all about Drukpa Kunli, as I feel it would be both interesting and valuable. At one time, Drukpa Kunli decided he'd go into solitary retreat. The idea was he'd have no human contact whilst in retreat, and his patron made him pledge that he'd remain strictly within the confines he'd set. His patron, knowing Drukpa Kunli was fond of ladies and Chang, said, You know, brother, I hope you're going to keep your vow of complete absence of human contact and never leaving your retreat. Yeah, 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 Drukpa Kunli yawned. No need to remind me. I know how to stay in a meditation retreat. After some days, however, his patron heard that Drukpa Kunli was drifting around the town and engaging in all kinds of activities. He went immediately to town to find Drukpa Kunli. When he found him, he was in a Chang house singing songs. What's the deal? his patron asked in agitated perplexity. I thought you promised me that you were going to live in total solitude. Yet here you are, cruising round the marketplace, carousing, boozing and generally carrying on like a wastrel. Drukpa Kunli laughed. Well, dear benefactor, you seem to know very little of meditation. Your perception of my behaviour arises from the fact that you've too many goddamn concepts running through your mind about what it means to stay within the confines of a meditation retreat. Physical solitude, you know, doesn't equate to mental solitude. Meditation is seeing the body as an embodied mind. The body is the locus within which mind resides. If mind resides in meditation, the body can roam where it will. Then Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche gave us a teaching. The most important thing with Dzogchen is presence of awareness. There are all kinds of obstacles to presence of awareness. The first is the obstacle of laziness and the second is forgetfulness. Even having received pointing out instruction, we tend to forget. The third obstacle is depression. Depression means blocking thought, the state where thought no longer arises. In this state, it is not possible to identify experiences. This state is one of total blankness. Another form of depression is agitation, when concepts move too quickly. If you see a person like this, they may appear to be sitting perfectly, but internally 
they're exhausted by travelling everywhere at once. As to how we should meditate, it's important to break sitting into short sessions. Meditation doesn't require sitting for long stretches, as if there were value merely in not moving. It's better to meditate for short periods, rather than long sessions that have no result. When drops of water accumulate, they gather momentum, but each drop is separate. Each drop is unique. Meditation sessions should accumulate in the same way. There should be no obsession with presence of awareness, as this merely leads to saturating mind with concepts about presence of awareness. The opposite is as bad. Paying no heed to presence of awareness and letting your attention blow like litter in an Indian town. Don't indulge in sensitivity, Rinpoche concluded, or allow yourselves to be assaulted by the weapon of emotions. If you become a victim of your own emotions, meditation is meaningless. Rinpoche turned to me. Is this common in the West? Yes, Rinpoche, I nodded. It seems that there's little relation with quite a few people between meditation and their emotions. People often claim to practice Dzogchen, but their emotions run pretty wild and they seem to see no contradiction in that. Oh, yeah. But not just Western people. Rinpoche shook his head, evidently wearied by the notion. Maybe this is a good time to tell what Drukpa Kunli said concerning such things. As a free-roaming yogi, I sometimes drop in on people who have a religious turn of mind. Once I visited a Kagyu Gompa where every monk had a jug of Chang somewhere. As I didn't want to be a common drunk, I stayed clear of the place. Then I went to a Sakya Gompa and found monks splitting doctrinal hairs in search of Dharma. I was concerned about forgetting the essential teachings, so I left, preferring not to argue. Later I went to a large Gelug Gompa, where every monk was looking for young monks as lovers. Fearful of the forcible entry of a monk's engorged schlong, I quit the place as quickly as possible. I visited a Shedra for Gomchens, and in every cave each Gomchen was pining for a woman. Not wishing to become a father or householder, <coughs> I moved on. Next was a Nyingma Gompa where every monk aspired to be the best dancer in the Garcham. So fearful of becoming a prima donna ballerina, I took to the road again. I went to mountain hermitages, but there they just gathered possessions from excessive donations. Fearing to break my vows, I hurried away as fast as I could, 
and visited a charnel ground. In that deserted place, the shamans were conjuring and chanting spells to become famous. So rather than enslaving myself to demons, I kept walking. I came up alongside a caravan of pilgrims discussing trade concerns, so I left the caravan. The next place I found was a retreat centre where the incumbents merely basked in the sun. Rather than lounging in the sanctuary of a small hut, I kept to myself. I met a tulku, preoccupied by religious treasure, but I'm not a collector, so I left him to his miserliness. Having moved on yet again, I grew tired and stayed a short while with the attendants of a lama. But as they'd made a tax collector of him, I took my leave and visited the house of a wealthy man. He was refreshingly honest, but his dwelling was no place for me and I went to find poor people. They'd pawned everything they had and spent their time pining over their loss. I decided that there were easier ways of owning nothing and moved on. Finally, I went to Lhasa. There were hosts and hostesses there eager for gifts and favours. But fearing to learn the art of flattery, I made plenty of distance between myself and that city. In this way was I wandering throughout Tibet, Bhutan and the outlying lands. But wherever I went, all I found were self-serving hypocrites. The best policy, based on this experience, seemed to be to remain on my own. Yeah, Rinpoche laughed, and that's why I never stay in one place for long. Rinpoche then turned to me and said, Oh yeah, now I have some words for you, because you are a good yogi and because I have confidence in you. I had confidence years ago that you will never become Tomyur again. For six years now you have not been Tomyur and your practice now is strong. You're going to be on your own now, so I will ask you, as I asked you before, never to mention my name to anyone. I want to avoid many Inji students knocking on my door. He laughed. They may not be special Tomyur like you once were. There is no need to write to me when you are in England. I don't answer letters. We will meet again, but not until some years have passed. Maybe more than 11 years. I do not know at this moment how long it will be, but maybe 13 years. That was not what I wanted to hear, not at all. But it was as it was, and I felt that Rinpoche knew something that I did not know.
This reminds me, in some ways, Rinpoche began with a big smile, of the first time you arrived in this room, here in Tsopema. I had no idea where this was going, so I said nothing. Rinpoche chuckled. It was that aristocratic tulku's toner you used to wear. The dark maroon one? I inquired. Yes, that's the one. Whatever happened to that toner? I gave it to Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche. It was just after I left you. The winter rains were still falling and it was really quite cold, so I thought Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche could make good use of it. Rinpoche nodded. Good. It will suit him. Anyway, it was too large on you, he laughed. The elephant ears of that toner made you look like a dob-dob. It was made for me in Bristol. The seamstress had a shoddy model to copy, so I gave her a photograph of a llama in Tibet, which showed quite clearly how it should look. I suppose her sense of the size of the elephant ears was a little exaggerated. Oh, yeah, it looked magnificent, Rinpoche exclaimed with great hilarity. You looked as if you were some rich young tulku from a noble family. That's why you got Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche's room when you first came here. Yes, I was aware of that and felt bad about it. And, of course, Rinpoche loved to tease me about it. It is not a problem, he laughed. It was not your intention. It is just Tibetan culture. This time monks at the Gompa thought you were a high lama. Why, Rinpoche? I wasn't wearing a fancy tonar this time. Ah, he laughed. This time it was because Gyaltsen, a Tibetan lama, was looking after you. And Kandro Tenzin Drolka was there too, also looking after you. The monks thought they were your servants. They did not realise that they are your friends. Because you are not so well, because of Indian water, and they were taking care of you, they thought Gyaltsen and Kandro Tenzin were your lama's attendants. This is too funny. That is why you were rescued from that rotten high-rent room in town, he laughed and why they gave you Dujum Rinpoche's room again. Suddenly it all made sense to me. So this story reminds you of my Tona and what happened in Sopema, because both stories were about misunderstanding externals. Oh yeah, Rinpoche laughed. This is what we are always discussing. You know, I commented, taking the risk in giving gratuitous explanation, that I never knew what that colour meant when I bought the fabric in Britain. It was in the remnant box where they keep the ends of rolls of fabric that cannot be sold. It was extremely cheap because there was such a small amount of it, but I figured there was just enough for a toner. Rinpoche roared with laughter. Only now you tell me. 
and slapped his thighs repeatedly as if it were the best joke he'd ever heard. I am too happy. Now you speak with me like a great hero. This is too good. I bade Rinpoche and Joma Sampo Daichen goodbye, as I had yet to pack for departure early the next day. Lama Gyaltsen and Kandro Tenzin Droka would follow me later. I went back to my room where I wept, because it might be 13 years before I saw him again. Big hero.